This audio recording is of our regularly scheduled service, May 8, 2016, at Restoration Road Church in Snohomish, Washington. The speaker is Sam Ford. More information can be found at restorationroadchurch.com. Amen. Well, good morning. Happy Mother's Day. Uh, my name is Sam. We're going to be in Acts chapter 2 today, so if you have your Bibles, you can turn there. Uh, we've been in a five-part series on the Holy Spirit, and I'm not one to usually have special sermons for Mother's Day, Father's Day, all those things. We just kind of let the Lord land us where we're at, and today we're in the final uh, kind of sermon on the Holy Spirit. And we've been um, spending a lot of time talking about the what we've called the most ignored person in your life, possibly, the third person of the Trinity, God the Holy Spirit, whom Jesus calls the Helper. And without Jesus helping us in death, we can't be saved. But without the Holy Spirit helping us in life, I am convinced we cannot experience the fullness of that salvation that God has accomplished for us. So left alone in death or in life, we are helpless. And so Jesus came to to save us from the helplessness of our deaths. And I think that the Holy Spirit comes and he saves us from what probably feels like at times the helplessness of our daily lives. And we've seen different things that the Holy Spirit helps us with and different things that he does. Last week we saw that God the Holy Spirit convicts us, those who are in the world, which everyone is at some point, they convicts us and then he calls some out of the world. And not only does the Holy Spirit seal our adoption as his children, he helps us from the inside out to identify ourselves as sons and daughters of the Father. But then, something that isn't talked about often enough probably, the Holy Spirit gathered us together. We're not just sons and daughters of the King. We are called the household of God, the family of God. We are made to be brothers and sisters in Christ. In other words, when Jesus saves someone, he begins by saving them to himself, but he also saves them to a community his people, by his spirit. This community is called the church. Now, the American version, we could say the world's version, but most of us are used to the American version of that world version of community, is not the same as gospel community. Community in the world, or American community, is is very man-centered. It's polarized, usually around whether it be your race or a personal interests or a personal viewpoint. And, and those communities then, based on those things, are devoted to shaping culture accordingly. And though the world makes claims about fostering unity through diversity, you'll hear that often if you spend any amount of time in high school assemblies especially, the world actually works very hard toward moral and social and economic homogeny. And even though it claims to be tolerant of differences and claims to be other-centered, it is in fact quite intolerant of difference and very much self-centered. Essentially, the world tells us that before you could possibly love others, you must love yourself. And what happens is spirituality is created out of that, and we hear people talking about karma. And what's karma? A very self-centered version of spirituality What I do affects me later, and you later, 
Unity in the world ultimately comes from loving the self first, first, loving others second, and then God a distant last. Gospel community couldn't be any more different. Now, whether that gospel community is lived out, as the Bible says, is certainly arguable. But instead of defining what gospel unity or gospel community ought be like according to what our experience is, which is our tendency with just about everything, why not hold the scriptures up and see what they say it's supposed to be and let it condemn us all or encourage us all? Jesus prayed in John 17 before he died for his disciples something very particular related to the coming spirit. He said in verse 22 of chapter 17, which is his long prayer, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them, speaking to his disciples. And I've done this, why? That they may be one, even as we are one. I and them, and you and me, that they may be perfectly one. Why? So that the world may know that they're awesome. Know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. It's about Jesus, he says. Unity among the people of God flows from God the Father, through God the Son, by God the Spirit, who are all by nature other-oriented. Biblical unity embraces diversity, not homogeny. And we see that played out in the New Testament, particularly in the book of Acts, as the Jews and the Greeks from every tribe and every tongue are gathered together into one family. Biblical unity is never based on an individual's ever-changing preferences, but on universal, unchanging truth. The people of God may have different races, different interests, and even different viewpoints on everything from food to politics. But we all have in Christ a shared identity and a shared allegiance and a shared mission and a shared hope. We're very different people. And that's a gloriously wonderful thing. But we have something outside of ourselves, outside of any human that brings us together. We are not individuals unified with other individuals. That's not what this is about. We are individuals unified with Christ. The gospel creates this, this radically countercultural unity that flows from loving God first, others second, and ourselves a distant last. Very different than the kinds of community that we're called into in the world. God's people are unified and they're unified in this thing called the church, which seems to have somewhat of a negative connotation or bad reputation, even among evangelical Christians. They're almost embarrassed to talk about the church, embarrassed to celebrate the church. The church, or Greek word ekklesia, is the people who are saved by Jesus, called out of the world and to one another. called out from the world to God and to one another. The church is the people of God whom the Father calls together, Jesus saves together, and the Spirit sanctifies together. The church is not only, which it is, but it's not only generational, as in 2,000 years ago there were people gathered as we are gathered, sharing the same identity and the same loyalty and the same hope, 
It is generational. It is invisible. It is also geographical and visible. We are gathering locally here in a way that can be seen as other churches, other places, even in the city but elsewhere, are gathering locally together to worship our King. The church is the people of God who gather together to love God, to love one another, and to make his love known. That's why we're here. And according to the scripture, I want you to hear this very carefully. According to the scripture, as we'll read today and other scriptures, the Holy Spirit works through the church in a way that he does not work anywhere else. The Holy Spirit works in the church in a way he does not work anywhere else. And that's why I will say, this is why the church must be first in our lives. Now, I realize when I make a statement like that, many cringe. Church first? What do you mean by that? I will explain. But it's a difficult one to hear, and this is why I think it's difficult for us to hear. If not explicitly, there is a perpetual sermon being preached to our hearts, to our minds, to our ears that proclaims family first. Family first, family first. And there's a fear that's often shaped by experience, and it's a legitimate experience that has happened. It's a fear that's shaped by an experience that such a commitment like church first will result in idolatry of the church and neglect of the family. And that has happened. But I find it interesting, and I wonder why it is that we don't possess the same kind of fear regarding idolatry of the family and neglect of the church. Why don't we ever talk about that fear? Before we allow our flesh, though, to shape our opinions about what the pastor means by church first, because that sounds horrible, let's just turn to Acts 2 and see what the Bible reveals about the right place of church in our lives, the people of God in our lives. In Acts chapter 2, we're going to read in verse 42. After Peter had preached his first sermon, he had called the crowds to repent and to believe 3,000 sinners were made saints by Jesus in a moment, and they were filled by the Holy Spirit. And those 3,000 people, so you go from 120-ish people to 3,000 in one sermon, pretty awesome. They're all filled with the Spirit, and then we have verse 42, okay, what effect did that have on them? It says this, and they, this group of 3,000 souls plus, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. This won't be on the screen. If you turn a couple chapters to Acts 4, verse 31, I want to read one other thing. You'll see as Peter and John began to preach in the temple and elsewhere, they began to create a ruckus and they got arrested or brought in basically to the authorities 
They were interrogated, they were threatened, and eventually they were released. And upon the release, they went back to the believers, I believe beginning in, oh, verse 23-ish or so, and they were rejoicing that they'd been released. They were excited, and they began to pray for boldness. And then it says in Acts chapter 4, verse 31, in the place which they were gathered together as they're praying, excited, celebrating what God is doing, the place was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And they continued. So this is, again, I'm filled with the Holy Spirit. What's happening here? They continued to speak the word of God with boldness. And now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, for they had everything in common. The church was filled with the Holy Spirit. These people were unified as one as God had said would happen. And the unifying power of the Spirit is what made it possible. And the question is, what were these people like? What were they devoted to? Well, it's pretty simple. If you turn back to Acts chapter 2, let me show you what they were devoted to. And we should describe the Christian church that was filled with the Spirit and the kind of unity they enjoyed. They began by the first thing. They were devoted to learning God's word. They were devoted to the apostles' teaching. They were devoted to it, committed to it. They were not devoted to an apostle, which is really important. That becomes a problem in 1 Corinthians. They were devoted to the apostles' teaching. The spirit who taught the disciples and the inspired words of the disciples now instructed even more disciples. The apostles were not teaching new revelation. The Spirit was doing what I preached several weeks ago, said he would do, remind them what Jesus had taught them. They were just mailmen. They were just passing on the same information that they had been taught by the Spirit, being reminded by the Spirit. And they were teaching them by the Spirit. And what did the church do? They gathered together to listen to the Word of God preached, regardless of who was preaching it. Like one of the biggest problems in the church, I used to be at a church years ago when I was younger, and if one particular pastor was not preaching, half the church was gone. That's a shame. The power of a preacher is not the preacher. It is the delivery of the Word of God by the Spirit. And my prayer is that we'll have a church where other pastors can come up and other preachers come up and we leave not saying, man, that was a funny joke that guy told. That was an amazing metaphor that guy said. Let me quote him on Facebook as opposed to, did you hear what God said through his word? The word is where the power is. And the church gathered to hear the word preached. They gathered to hear doctrine explained. They gathered to hear encouragement from the word, admonishment from the word, instruction from the word. What's a spirit-filled church? It's one that is unified around and devoted to studying God's word. Hungry for God's word. I want to know God's word. That's the first thing they were devoted to, the first thing that characterized them. What else does it say? It says they were devoted to fellowship, to fellowshipping with one another. Now, as I said, the world offers community but it's a community that honestly is full of activities and devoted to all kinds of causes. Christian fellowship 
offers family that is full of relationship and devoted to Christ. Now, this kind of fellowship is not merely about doing things together. It's about being with one another for the purpose of drawing out Christ-like character in one another. Which, guess, guess what? Often takes some hard conversations, difficult conversations, important conversations. But that's why we fellowship. Like our earthly families, we can't choose who God brings into our family. But in Christ, we don't reject those differences. As we gather together, you know what we do? We begin to embrace those differences, not just as compassion towards one another, but in a sense that I need what you have. You begin to have fellowship with people that at times bug the snot out of you, right? Let me give you an example. Uh, My children love them but they have sibling issues like any other siblings probably do. My wife has been very good about trying to direct their eyes towards Christ, right? She is an awesome mom and an awesome instructor, and she will always say, like, with one brother will say, it's bothering the other brother, and she'll often say, why do you think the Lord gave you this brother? It's not just about, like, how can I deal with this brother? How can I get away from him? Like, well, why do you think... He gave you this brother. What is he trying to develop in you? It's interesting as we're pulled together here, a family of families, a group of friends that probably wouldn't be friends other than the fact that we're gathered here with a shared identity in Christ at times, right? We begin to value one another for, for what we maybe never would have sought out normally because what is community like in the world? They go and find people like them. Instead, gospel community, we begin to embrace our differences, embrace our different viewpoints, embrace our personality quirks, trusting that God has brought us into fellowship with one another to be changed by the Spirit in one another. Many of us come and we got a PhD and all kinds of biblical knowledge and we're excited, but you have an elementary education in compassion and patience. And so you need someone in your life to help you get a PhD in patience. And guess how God does that? right? He brings someone into your life. He brings someone into your family that's difficult to be patient with. You may have all kinds of Bible knowledge, but you're a jerk, right? And God's like, I'm glad you know me so well. Let's make you a little more loving, okay? That's what he does with the church, and it's beautiful as we become more Christ-like, but that takes, that's, there's a tension in that. And this is what they were devoted to, fellowshipping one with another, Spending time with one another. I love the verse in 1 Corinthians 12, 18, where God, or Christ talking about, uh, or I'm sorry, Paul talking about in Christ, the church and, and the makeup of the church and the different parts of the church. And he says this, but as it is, and I would say as Restoration Road Church is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. He has put different people here to bring different things out of us and put different things into us, and it's beautifully glorious but also difficult. And that's what real relationships are like. Not only devoted to the Word and one another, a couple more, they were devoted to communion. We will say the breaking of bread. 
Now, on a one level, the believers were devoted to just that, breaking bread with one another, eating together. I believe that um, this is a lost art that's very powerful. Um, I commend uh, many people in here who have just, it's not even a necessarily gift of hospitality. I think some people, like, they think, well, I don't have the gift of hospitality, so I can't. Like, I, there's plenty of people here who I would say, you know, it's not like they have some amazing gift of hospitality, but they are very hospitable people. And they invite people into their homes. And you can never underestimate the power of that. Fellowship over a meal, I think, represents a deeper sense of unconditional love than nearly anything, because you're inviting someone into your home to share your table like family. And, and in doing so, you are saying, look, um, I'm welcoming you, and I'm seeing you as important. And I'm inviting you, and I'm accepting you as an equal, but more than that, this meal is a grace. I'm going to treat you and love you like family. But they're doing more than just a meal here. They are eating together. They are celebrating regular meals together. They're actually gathering regularly to devote themselves to the meal, the Lord's Supper. What does that even mean, right? What do you have a church that gets together and has tons of potlucks? Rad. It's incomplete if they're not celebrating the meal together. Essentially, what is the meal? It's this. It's communion. It's the breaking of bread to remind ourselves that Christ was broken for us. It is the drinking of wine to remind ourselves that blood was shed for us. It's a Christ-centered church. It's a church that when they gather together, when they have meals, they're directing all eyes towards Christ always. This is about Jesus. This is not about how nice of people we are. Like if you only stop at hospitality and fellowship and like, hey, let's have each other over, that the world can do that and they can probably do it better than us. But only the church gathers together in the name of Jesus for the glory of Jesus to draw Jesus out in one another. That's a Christ-centered church. And that's what these people are doing. These people who didn't, think about this, people had no relationship with one another. 3,000 people no relationship with one another, suddenly they're living like this. It gets even better, or worse, depending on how you're feeling. It gets better. It says the believers were devoted to sharing with one another. They had all things in common. It says it multiple times in Acts 2 and Acts chapter 4. It says none of them considered anything as belonging to themselves. It was not their own. The health and the growth of the body is actually dependent upon its members to willingly give of themselves to one another. That's not just your treasure. That's your time and many of your gifts. I don't mean gifts in a bow. I mean the gifts that the Spirit has given you to edify the church and your resources and do so generously. The Spirit of God has given us all of these things. Our time is not our own, it's His. Our energy is not our own, it's His. Our treasure is not our own, it's His. And they be given for Him to build up His people for His glory. Sadly, if most believers were honest with themselves, they would acknowledge that they often give the better part of their time and their energy and their gifts, and their money to all kinds of social activity and individuals and organizations other than 
the advancement of the kingdom of God through the ministry of the local church. Let's be honest. There's very little to distinguish many Christians from the world in this regard. They give the best that they have to everything but the church. And I'm not just talking about a check. The spirit-filled church is a church where, guess what, there's no want of volunteers, no want of money or help, where everyone who is within never goes without. What a place. What an amazing place. The last thing they're devoted to is worship. It says they were going day by day, which means a lot of the days, like all the days, all the time. They were going into the temple to worship. They were going into their homes to worship and to again break bread and have communion with one another. They were, just be real simple, right? The Bible's not complicated. They were devoted to worshiping together a lot. And this is foreign to us. It's foreign to us because in American culture, in America, we've like, church happens at 9 o'clock, between 9 and 10.30, depending on how long-winded this pastor is, and that's where I get all spiritual, right? And, I, and that's it. But here we see sometimes they gathered publicly at the temple. Other times they gathered in small groups in homes. But all the times, I think, they organized their days around gathering with God's people to worship together. And I think that we have to really ask ourselves, is that the, is that the mentality of, of, and I know I'm a pastor saying this. You're like, oh, you should be saying this. But let's just imagine I'm a brother in Christ for a second. Okay, let's just pretend that because I am actually first before I'm your pastor. So let's think about that. And ask ourselves and ask myself, like if I wasn't a pastor, because my life is naturally organized around the church, okay? I, I'm paid to study God's word, to counsel, um, to, to organize and to lead. I mean, all those things happen. So if I wasn't doing that, would I describe my life as organized around the gathering of God's people to worship? Would I be putting those things on my calendar and then filling the rest in? Or would I be putting all the things in the calendar and then splattering wherever I had saw fit and it happened to work out perfectly and aligned the stars and, okay, well, this happens to work? What would it look like? That's a fair and honest question we should all ask ourselves, and I realize it's more difficult for me to ask that. But their lives are not characterized primarily by Building marriages, though we ought to build marriages. They're not characterized primarily about building families or building careers. In fact, I would argue they were not committed to building anything at all for themselves, but they were committed to being built into something by God. That's what the Bible says. Ephesians 2, one of my favorite passages in verse 19, speaking about this crazy diversity of people that are brought together in this radical new thing called the church, the ecclesia, the assembled ones, the ones called out of the world to God and to one another. It says, you are no longer aliens, but you are fellow citizens with saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together, what happens? It grows into a holy temple 
In him, Christ, you are being built into a dwelling place, built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Or as Peter says, you are a house of living stones built to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ. We are being built as a people. Our worshiping has an effect, and it's not just, hey, praise God, move on. Something is happening to us that doesn't happen elsewhere. And you see at the end of Acts 2 there, as the Spirit of God begins to unify His people around these things, as they begin to devote themselves to sacrifice, that gives way to glad hearts filled with joy. They're not doing it because the pastor has been, come on, you guys got to go have dinner together. They're compelled to spend time with, it's joyful to them. It is joyful for them, as you'll see later, they're selling their stuff, and who has needs? What do you, what do you need? And then we see, even more than that, it's the kind of community that becomes naturally attractive to the world. This is the huge mistake pastors make, Okay? Today, in hopes of making their congregations joyful, right? So we have a church that's joyful as they're devoting these things. Like, not to say the church is never happy, but like, you get complaints occasionally from people. Why don't we do this? Why don't we do that? They don't sound like that, but it makes it sound worse, right? (laughs) That's how I read your emails, by the way. Why don't we do this? Right? (laughs) There you go. Cats out of the bag. (laughs) But there's a pressure, right? There's a pressure for me to make everyone happy. How do you do that? Well, we need a youth ministry. We need a men's We need a, some kind of social plan serving everyone. Do all these things. And pastor's like, okay, i got to make the church happy. And you know what happens? A pastor becomes an activities coordinator. Doing event after event after event. People, why don't we do more events? Take a lot of work. But the other thing pastors often make the mistake of doing is trying to make the world happy, or trying to make the church attractive to the world. And instead of devoting their themselves to some real basics, they begin to adopt the world's version of unity, and they begin to compromise the truth. Oh, we're we're accepting of everything and everyone. Oh, yeah, we'll change because that's probably wrong. I know it's old and ancient. I'll tell you my perspective, since I got the pulpit. (laughs) It's not my job, nor any pastor's job, to entertain the church or to attract those who are not in the church in order to keep you here or to grow the church. It is the pastor's job to call people to faithfulness in first things, which is what I pray you're receiving now when we talk about the church being first. See, according to the book of Acts, the church was central to the lives of Christians. And I know that many of you are running through the abusive church experiences you've had and the different things you've read. You're like, church first is just destructive. I understand that it has been abused. I understand the church has been uh, made an idol and wrongfully so. But we live in a time that not only is the church separated from the state, we live in a time where I think the church has been separated from spiritual growth. 
Because we don't see the church comparable to the fun-filled communities in the world, which, guess what? There's some pretty rad communities in the world that have a lot more fun and do way better activities than the church could ever dream of. But because the church and the gathered don't, don't compare, we either despise it as burdensome or reject it as completely unnecessary. I can get what I want from this community over here. And that affects our spirituality. In fact, I think it creates a very individual and privatized spirituality where I'm going to say so-called Christians become devoted to very different things than found in Acts 2, like my interpretation. Not the apostles' teaching, my interpretation. Well, I, that's, that's your interpretation. Or my needs or my personal relationship with Jesus, or my prosperity, or my worship preferences. So let me be clear as I can. I do not believe that your personal time with Jesus is enough for your spiritual growth. I believe your personal interpretation is incredibly dangerous. Your refusal to personally commit is hurtful, and your refusal to personally invest is anything but wise stewardship. Your personal worship preferences are not a good reason to leave a church, and your personal relationship with Jesus is never emphasized as the center of spiritual growth. On the contrary, you know what the Bible promotes? It says that personal or spiritual growth happens in the context of relational community with other believers, mainly through organized gatherings of God's people. It's interesting if you think about that every book in the New Testament, I could argue every book in the Bible, we'll stick with the New Testament, particularly the letters explicitly that Paul writes, are addressed to local churches. Obedience to the 60 plus one another commands of Christ is impossible without the local church. The general pattern of, of the apostle, if you ever read the book of Ephesians, for example, how he lays out how the gospel is applied to our life. It says, this is who we are in Christ. Don't forget this is who you were in Christ and because it's all by grace. And then you get into Ephesians chapter 3. What does it start with? The church. This is who you are in Christ. And then the church. And then individuals. And then marriages and families and work. There's an order to the relationships in almost every one of Paul's letters. And it begins with the church that the gospel is brought to bear on the community of God's people before anywhere else and anyone else. If you think about the gospel applied to families or individuals first, we might be left with the impression that our family life or individual priorities take precedence over a commitment to God's people. Never forget that Jesus addresses churches by name in the book of Revelation, reminding us this, that even with all its bruises, Jesus finds the church beautiful. And he expects his people to be gathering in the church, listening to him speak and preparing for his return. Jesus loves the church. Jesus died for the church. Jesus came to build his church, and Jesus is returning for his church. That's why the people of God, the church, must be first. The church first means learning God's word first. It means loving people first. It means keeping Christ at the center first. It means sharing with those in need 
first. It means gathering to worship God first. And to say the church must be first is not to say it's right to reject or neglect the responsibilities you have as an individual or as a spouse or as a parent or as a worker. On the contrary, hear me carefully. This kind of prioritizing is designed by God to ensure that you actually pursue and protect that which God says is important, including being a godly individual and a godly spouse and a godly parent. How do I know that? Think about this. Where else in the world are you going to be taught that? Where else in the world are you going to be reminded to love your spouse and to love your kids and fathers not to provoke your children? Where else in the world are you going to be encouraged towards that? Where else in the world are you going to be admonished and said, you're not loving your wife? Where else in the world are you going to hear and be called back to the things of God? I would argue that one's neglect of the church is the path to neglect the things of God and particularly to neglect those who are in your care. The church is to be the place of safety and encouragement and correction and growth and joy and hope for believers precisely because it is the place where Jesus has chosen and promised to put his name. My life in Christ is not merely about me. There is a we involved. And that sounds kind of clever, I realize that. But if you read Hebrews chapter 10, it says this. I'm going to paraphrase through 19 and then read 24. It says, since we have confidence to enter into the holy places, we have a great priest. Let us draw near. Let us hold fast. Let us consider how to stir one another on to love and good works. And lastly, let us not neglect to meet together as some are in the habit of doing. See, everyone understands what it looks like to neglect your marriage. Everyone understands what it looks like to neglect your family, or your children. Everyone knows what it looks like to neglect your health or neglect your job or your home. Everyone knows, but what does it look like? Are we willing to ask, what does it look like to neglect your church? Those are hard questions. But I think, and this has been asked before, if you want to know where you are at personally with that, Consider what it would look like if everybody in the church was devoted as you were. What if everyone in the church was devoted as you were to those things? To the teaching of God, to fellowshipping with God's people, to giving of yourself that others' might, needs might be met. We are a body that is growing and being built up by God's Spirit for the glory of God. And the body of Restoration Road Church by His Spirit is composed of all of you. And every body, not everybody, every body looks different, right? Just as our bodies look different, every, our church is going to look different. may not have one arm. doesn't make any less of a body. It's just how way God built it. 
but he's building us a certain way, and you are a part of that. You are a body part of this body being shaped and grown. Don't be a lame part. It's one thing not to have an arm. It's another thing to have one that just kind of lays there while the rest of the body is working, and this is fully functional, just not doing anything. You have not been brought here by accident is my point. You have been brought here. You, I can't do, don't say that. God has made you to be a part of this local body, I believe, but if not this body, another one, not to bounce around from body to body and to shape it and to do something here for his glory and for your joy and for your growth and perhaps for the growth of others. 1 Corinthians 12, for just as the body is one, it has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or freed, ugly, good-looking, educated, uneducated, tall, short, fat, skinny, funny, not so funny, you get it. All of us were made to drink of one spirit, for the body does not consist of one member but many. So maybe this is a better question and a more pleasant one to consider. What could the assembly, the church of our Lord Jesus look like if all the energy and time and sacrifice you gave to every other community you poured into the church? If you are in Christ, God has given you his spirit and his spirit is devoted to reminding you what Jesus said. And so let me read to you what Jesus said in John 15, as we close. In John 15, 34, he said, A new commandment I give you, that you love one another. Not that you're just loving. He didn't just say, hey, be loving. He said that you love one another, speaking to his disciples. Just as I loved you, he said, you also are to love one another. Verse 35, by this, not your events, not your cool signs, not the thousand ways you serve, by your love, not just general love, not just general tolerance, not just really nice sentimentality and affection, your love for one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples. If you love one another, that's Jesus. And I compel you to obey the Spirit who's brought you into salvation, not so that you can have a personal relationship with God, but that you can have a relationship with His people. The Spirit is calling us to love one another as Christ loved us, and Christ loved us way more than just sentimental thoughts or good intentions. He loved us in a way that we could feel it. And this is where we have communion. There's an aspect of communion that we forget. There's a physical aspect to it. Jesus didn't say, hey, every time you gather together, you know, just come up and think about the cross. Right? Wouldn't that be weird? People walking up here and they just kind of come up. They move on. There's something physical happening here. 
It's spiritual, but there's something physical to remind us that our spiritual lives bleed out into realness. That you can really love and really serve and really care for one another, and you can just think about it. Jesus really came down, and he really died. His body was really broken for our sins. His blood was really shed for us. He really gave everything he had for us that we would love God and love one another. And so as you take communion, and this is for those who are in Christ, these are for those who know that they are sinful, know that they don't deserve his love, and yet they know his love is so radical that he covers it all. But remind, or be reminded of this, that yes, you have a new life in Christ through faith by grace. You have a renewed life every time you come up, because guess what? It's not like we walk out perfectly sinless. Yes, God sees us sinless, but we screw up, and we need to be reminded often that we are forgiven, that we are cleansed. We want to restore that, that communion with Christ constantly. So we have a renewed life, and that reminds us of us. But we are also pointing like this eternal life we're going to have, where we're going to feast with Jesus. Yes, that's true. But you know one thing that we don't talk about enough? We are coming up with one table and having a shared meal. And as you confess through taking communion, you are making a commitment to one another. You're saying not just, I love you, but in a very real and tangible way, I'm taking responsibility for you. When you have a need, I'm going to be there to serve you. And yes, every person is not going to be able to meet every single need, but someone should be able to meet every need. No one who is within should go without. That is the Spirit's hope for us. That is the Spirit's goal for us. That is what Spirit's growing us into. And yes, we're still very immature, but by God's grace, he will complete the work that he started in us. Amen? Let's pray.